If you please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first, first 17 verses, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 571 and 572. And for the next four weeks, our study in Isaiah will morph into an Advent series. Now, all of Isaiah is about Jesus, as we've been seeing. But these specific passages that we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks are actually passages that are cited in the New Testament uh, that come from Isaiah. And we're going to look at both the original historical context from the book of Isaiah as well as their messianic fulfillment in the New Testament. And this chapter that we're looking at today, this marks a shift in the book. The first six chapters were really an introduction. They were, they were more general. They were more generic. They gave general timeless truths. They spoke in general about sin, about judgment and redemption, and then the redemption of this remnant. In the same cycle, we're going to see the cycle of sin, judgment, redemption, repeat. This will continue. But in chapter 7, it gets much more specific. It grounds the narrative in history, in a specific historical situation with real people, real events that happened in the history of God's people. And this is why I had us read the Old Testament reading that we had from 2 Kings 16, because this chapter gives us the historical background for what we're going to read here in Isaiah chapter 7. So Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the living God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tamiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is true. We thank you that your prophecy is true. Lord, it can be counted upon. And Lord, it speaks not only to the original audience, but it speaks to us today. And Father, this prophecy, this word of God will change us, will conform each one of us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So what I first want to do is go through a little biblical history. I'll give you some background to help explain what's happening. Because without that, it's, it's easy for this just to be names and places that really make no sense to us. So I want to go back a little bit just to describe the setting of what, what's going on here. So first of all, God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, named after the 12 sons of Jacob. They were united in the United Kingdom under King Saul and under King David and under King Solomon. And actually, they reached the zenith of their worldly power worldly influence and, and, and wealth under King Solomon. However, it didn't last long. However, at Solomon's death, this united kingdom fell apart. It split. Ten tribes followed the, the wicked Jeroboam, who was not from the kingly line. He was not a descendant of David. And they became known as the, the northern kingdom, or of Israel. And sometimes it's confusing, because prior to the split, all of God's people were known as Israel. But after the split, these ten northern tribes, these were known as Israel. Sometimes they're called Ephraim, after the, the half-tribe of, of Joseph. Joseph's uh, sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. Or sometimes they're even just called Samaria, which is the capital of their city, where Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. Uh, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So we, we need to keep all these, these names straight, or we want to understand who the players are. So that's ten tribes. They became the northern kingdom. They have to split two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They stayed loyal to the house of David. They followed Solomon's son, Rehoboam. In the books of First and Second Kings, they'll alternate between these kings. They'll tell a little bit about the kings of Judah and a little bit of, about the kings of the north, the kings of Israel. And you'll notice when you're reading through First and Second Kings that the kings of the north, of Israel, of Ephraim, of Samaria, of Samaria they were wicked. They just, all they did was wicked. All they did was evil in the sight of the Lord. They basically, from day one, became apostate. Now, the southern king, the southern kingdom of Judah, had some good kings and it had some bad kings. Uh, the, their kings were always descendants of King David, and, and some of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Some did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But the Lord always preserved a remnant of his people, both in the north and in the south. And Isaiah is preaching to the southern kingdom. He, he's preaching... Uh, near the end of the, the history of the northern kingdom. In fact, this reading that I just read gives a prophecy of the fall of the northern kingdom uh, to the Assyrian Empire. And this happened in history in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom of Judah lasted for another 136 years, but it also fell, this time to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So Isaiah 1.1 tells us the setting. It tells us that Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All of these are kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And of these four kings, three of them were good kings. They did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Hezekiah, they were good kings. 
But Ahaz, the one who this chapter that we're reading about today is about, he was a bad king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the Old Testament reading that Nathan read for us this morning from 2 Kings 6, we heard that Ahaz, he, he walked in the way of the evil people around him. It says he even burned his own son as a sacrifice. I mean, this is, this is wicked. And, and this was an evil practice outlawed in the law, law of Moses. And Ahaz followed the, the, the wicked practices of those who did not know God. He was not like the people of God. He was an unbeliever. And chapter 7 takes place in the days of Ahaz. And this is at least 16 years after Isaiah's commission that we looked at last week. Because in chapter 6, chapter 6 takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. And we know from 2 Kings 15 that Uzziah's son, Ahaz's father, Jotham, was king for 16 years. So it's at least 16 years after what we looked at last week. Maybe even more. Now, Ahaz has a problem. He has a serious problem. His kingdom is in danger. It's, it's in danger of basically being wiped off the, the, the face of the map. Uh, he's in danger of invasion from his neighbors, Israel and Syria. And Israel, again, this is the northern kingdom, this is God's people, and Syria, which is a, which is a pagan city that was just north of Israel. And just this very fact that Israel would join in with Syria shows just how far God's people have fallen. They've entered alliances with pagans against their fellow Israelites, against their brothers in the Lord in Judah. And all of this, they were attempting to conquer Judah, attempting to conquer Jerusalem. Now, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of, of Ramalia, the king of Israel, they launched this attack against Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. However, you notice that they're not able to be successful. Verse 1 tells us they could not mount an attack against it. But notwithstanding... Verse 2 tells us that the news of this alliance, of this attack, caused the king and the people, both the king and the people, to shake as the the trees shake in the wind. Basically, they're terrified. They're they're certain that they are doomed. They are certain that this is the end of their empire. However, God's not going to let this happen. God is not going to let this happen. Even though Ahaz was evil, even though the people had rebelled against God and forsaken him, God is still faithful. God is still preserving a remnant that were faithful. And for the sake of this remnant, God would preserve the kingdom. Verse 1 says that even though this alliance came against Jerusalem, they could not mount an attack against it. And the reason for this was not the strength of Judah. It was not the the scale and cunning of Ahaz. The only reason was the faithfulness of the Lord. He would not allow his people, his city to fall at this time. So the Lord sends his prophet, sends Isaiah to this wicked king to assure him, to let him know that this attack will not be successful. The Lord will protect his faithless people. And Isaiah is, is, is directed to take his son, Shear Jashub. And you may have a note in your Bible that says that this me, the, the meaning of this name, it says, a remnant shall return. And even the name of the prophet's son that he is going to have with him. And this prophet may even be a a little baby that he's holding in his arms. This name will be an assurance that God will preserve his people. He will preserve for himself a remnant. He will not let them be destroyed by this feared alliance. So let's look at this message that the Lord gives to Ahaz uh, through Isaiah in verse 4. It says, and say to him, be careful. So Isaiah is to say to the king, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, 
Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Romalia. I love the language that he uses here. He says, don't be afraid of these guys. Don't be afraid of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. God is saying these two fierce kings that you Ahaz are, are so terrified of, they're nothing. They're absolutely nothing. They're not long for this world. They're like a smoldering piece of firewood that's just about to go out. God declares that these two kingdoms, that Israel and Syria, they are, <clears throat> shortly will be no more. And we know from history that's exactly what the case is. They were near the end of these empires being, being in existence. <clears throat> and according to this message, there is absolutely nothing that Ahaz has to do. The Lord is going to do it all. The Lord is going to save his people. All King Ahaz has to do is just sit back and let the Lord do it. He has no part whatsoever in this victory. He has to be careful. He has to be quiet. He has not to fear, not to let his heart be troubled by the threat. God will do it all. All Ahaz has to do is trust God. All he needs to do is to have faith. Ahaz simply has to trust and do absolutely nothing. It is all of God. In verses 10 and 11, we see how, how gracious the Lord is. He knows that Ahaz is terrified. He knows he's, he's not a man of faith. He knows the, that, that Ahaz will need much more than just this prophecy to believe. So the Lord graciously offers to give Ahaz a sign. He offers to give him proof to, claim, to, 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 to calm him down, to calm this fear and give him faith. And in verses 10 and 11, we read, And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. So these words that you see here, as deep as Sheol, that is as, as deep as the, the land of the death, the underworld, and as high as heaven, as where God abides. This is called a mirrorism. It's basically a, a Hebrew literary device. And what they do is you take two opposites, as low as Sheol, as high as heaven. And it means it includes everything in between. So basically what he's saying is anything, you ask anything, whatever you need to see as a sign, I will give it to you. The Lord will give it to him. <clears throat> now we also need to understand that this is a special circumstance. The Lord here is speaking directly to Ahaz. He's not speaking to all of us. This is not a general command that any time that you, you, want to, you don't believe the Lord, you can ask for any sign and he will give you the sign. No, it is given only to Ahaz. See, we today, we have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. That is the way the Lord directs us. We don't need to ask the Lord to, to direct us and, and confirm his promises that are given in Scripture. We don't have to, to ask him to send us some type of sign. Now, the Lord does direct us through providence. We see it all the time. For example, he may give us a specific opportunity. He may give us a specific gifting in an area. He may give us a godly desire to do something. And this is the way the Lord directs us to specific action. But we are not to ask the Lord for a sign to prove that he is trustworthy, to prove that his promises are true. We don't have to pray for, for a burning in the bosom as we, as we read through Scripture to confirm that it really is God's word. And Ahaz here is given this unique privilege. This offer is, is wide open. God is basically saying that whatever you want as a sign, I will give it to you. Ahaz can't say, you know, I didn't know. Ahaz can't say, uh, I, I don't understand. Ahaz can't say, you didn't give me enough information, God. God offered Ahaz a blank check. God said, whatever evidence, whatever evidence you need to believe what I said, I will give to you. Can God do any more than this? And how does Ahaz respond? Look at verse 12. 
But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Doesn't it sound so pious, so super spiritual? Right? I won't ask. I won't put God to the test. Now, this is the right answer generally. If, if, if we were tempted to put the Lord to the test, that's how we should do it. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil? And the devil took Jesus to the top of the temple? And then, then the devil even quoted scripture, of course, out of context, as the, as the devil always does. And he says that Jesus, God will command his angels uh, over you to watch over you, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You remember how Jesus responded to him? Jesus said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, while this response is the right one in general, this response is entirely wrong if God himself is the one who tells you to ask for a sign. What we see in Ahaz, Ahaz is he does not ask for a sign, not because he's righteous, not because he trusts God unquestioningly, not because he is like Jesus when tempted by the, the devil, no. Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign because Ahaz does not want a sign. Ahaz is afraid that if he actually asks for a sign and, and the Lord gives it to him, then Ahaz is obligated to actually believe what the Lord said. And this is something that Ahaz does not want to do. Ahaz has no intention to listen to Isaiah's instructions. Ahaz intends to take matters into his own hands. Ahaz has no intention to simply trust that the Lord will deliver him. And we're told in 1 Kings 16 exactly what Ahaz did. Just as Israel had made this alliance with the, the pagan Syrians against their brothers Judah, well, Ahaz, Ahaz intends to make an alliance with the pagan Assyrians. Now, these are not the same. Syria and Assyria are completely different. Syria was a, was a country that was just north of Israel. Assyria was actually this big empire that completely surrounded them. Assyria was much more powerful than the Syrians. So Ahaz makes this alliance with Assyria against his own brothers in Israel. He's doing the same thing that Israel was doing. In 2 Kings 16, as Nathan read for this morning, we read, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. See, again, they could not conquer him. Syria and Israel besieged Jerusalem, but they couldn't conquer it. And why? Because the Lord would not allow it. They had their plan, but the Lord would not allow it. But rather than trust the Lord who has delivered them, the Lord who he belongs to, look what it goes on to say. It says, Then Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pizlar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who is attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord in the temple, and in the treasures of the king of uh, the king's house, and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. He took God's the money that was given to God's temple. He gave it to this pagan king. And it says the king of Assyria then marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. Problem ended, right? But rather than trusting the Lord, Ahaz turns to those who do not know the Lord. He turns to them for protection. He turns to unbelievers to save him. He takes the gold and silver that was in God's house, that was God's money, and he gives it to a pagan king, and he gives it as a bribe. And Ahaz then says, I love this, he says, I am the servant, and I am the son of you, O pagan king. He is not the son and the, and the servant of the pagan king. No, Ahaz is the servant of the living God. He is the son of David, the man after God's own heart. And what wickedness do we see here? 
He's turning his back on the Lord, the, the only one he can trust, and he's looking to these pagans, looking to God's enemies for his security. Ahaz is an unbeliever. That's plain. He is an unbeliever. And to him, the Lord is nothing. The Lord means nothing to him. And he doesn't ask for a sign because he has absolutely no intention to follow Isaiah's words, regardless of whatever sign the Lord does. He's not going to trust Isaiah. Ahaz will not trust. He refuses to trust the Lord. He will not sit back. He will not allow the Lord to fight the battle. And let the Lord save his people, as he promised to do through the prophet. See, Ahaz, as an unbeliever, he thinks as an unbeliever. And he thinks that he has to do something. Right? He, he believes he trusts in his own cunning, his own skill to get out of the situation. To Ahaz, God is nothing. He must rely on himself. <clears throat> My friends, works righteousness is baked into our very DNA. When an unregenerate person hears the gospel, they hate the gospel. And why do they hate the gospel? Because they despise grace. It seems too easy to them. You mean a person can, can rob, a person can kill, a person can steal, a person can rape? And just simply repent and be forgiven? I can't believe in that kind of God. I can't believe in this foolishness. It's too easy. It's not fair. We need to do something. We need to man up. We need to do something. We need to, to put ourselves, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's what we say. That's the American way. And we hear it all the time. But the problem is we don't understand that we need grace. We always look at the other guy say, look how bad that guy is. We can't see how bad we are. My friends, as God is looking, this may strike, some of you may think this is completely absurd, but if God were looking at the most righteous person other than Jesus who ever lived, and you can pick whoever, you can put Mother Teresa or Gandhi, whoever you want, and Adolf Hitler, you put them together, God cannot see the difference when you compare it to God. It's like a 30-watt light bulb and a 100-watt light bulb compared to the sun. That's how it is. And we despise grace to those who are below us because we don't think we need grace. Every single one of us needs grace. And that is the reason why we despise grace. We also see people who are willingly blind. They arrogantly claim that there's just not enough evidence to believe in God. They say, why doesn't God plainly show himself? Why is God such a mystery? Why, why, why does he just do? And, and they'll say, if God would just do this, if God would just do X, then I would believe in him. My friends, they wouldn't. They really wouldn't. Because God has clearly made himself known. Through the creation, when you open your eyes, if you look out that window, you see God. He has made himself known. He is everywhere. In creation, we see him everywhere. We sing, this is my father's world, and to my listening ear. All nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought, rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hand, the wonders, Ross. You see, we see God. We praise God. As believers, we can see God in every single thing. But the unbeliever refuses to see it. The unbeliever refuses to see God. See, God has graciously made himself known to all who earnestly seek him. The problem is that the unbeliever doesn't want to seek him. The unbeliever does not want to know God. They don't want God to make himself known definitively because if they did that, then they would have to be changed. If God made himself known, they would have to change. They would have to cease their rebellion against him, their desire to be God, and they would have to submit to him. And this they refuse to do. And my friends, I've seen it so many times. People who refuse to see the truth. People who refuse to even look for the truth. 
They won't look at Scripture. They won't look at the evidence. Why? Because they don't want to find the answer. I've told this story many times about when I was an elder in, in Blacksburg about this young lady who came up to us and said, I just don't believe anymore. I'm, you know, take me off the rolls. I don't. She's really nice about it. So I, I just don't believe. And of course, we're not going to do. We're, we're, she was a member of the church, so we were talking to her. And said, so "Why don't you believe?" So, well, it's because of evolution. Okay, evolution. Let's let's talk. We've got some biologists. I actually had to talk to my wife, who was a veterinarian, and see how you can you can uh, square what science says and what scripture says. And they did it. And she said, no, "That's not enough." And then it always says, I, "I don't like what the Bible says about." I, I have some gay friends. Okay, let's let's talk about that. And, 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 she, and she talked about that. So, well, that's not the reason. And then she kept, it's like playing whack-a-mole. She kept coming up with different reasons. And then we asked her, so what about your, 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 your personal life? And she said, well, I'm living with my boyfriend and we're sexually active. So you know that that's against Scripture. And that was the reason. She, she understood that if she wanted to believe in God, she would have to change the way she acted. And she refused to do that. So she said, I no longer believe in God. We see this all the time. And my friends, dealing with this attitude is extremely frustrating. And I'm sure it was frustrating for Isaiah. But God, remember, God told Isaiah that this was his ministry. Isaiah 6, God tells Isaiah that his message would actually bring hardening in response. It wouldn't soften, it would harden him. But even in this, God is glorified. But I tell you, this is a rough ministry. This is a difficult ministry. So Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. But look at verses 13 through 17. It says, and he, Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be destroyed. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So here we say a sign is given. It's the sign of Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Crazy sign, isn't it? But we're told specifically of the fulfillment of the sign. We heard it in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that this prophecy is about Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. Again, it means God with us. And Jesus was born of a virgin. His conception was miraculous. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the ultimate solution to not only Ahaz's problem, but all of our problem, humanity's problem. But the question is, what does this mean for Ahaz, right? How is the prophecy about an event that would not take place for over 700 years, how is this a sign of a king of Judah who is facing imminent destruction of his kingdom, imminent doom? How is this going to help him that in 700 years a child will be born of a virgin? Well, scholars have debated this, and there are many different opinions. Many believe that there were two fulfillments of this prophecy. The ultimate fulfillment, which is Jesus. Everyone's in agreement that the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus and Matthew. But according to this view, there's an intermediate fulfillment that would have taken place shortly after Isaiah spoke these words. And here are some of the options that are given for this intermediate fulfillment. <clears throat> One is that the prophecy is of the birth of Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is Ahaz's own son. He is a, a good king. So they're saying that Ahaz is, is, is his son Hezekiah is, is what's mentioned in this prophecy about Emmanuel. 
Another one is that this is a prophecy about Isaiah's own son that we read about in chapter 8, where Isaiah is going to, uh, he's, he's going to have an, an, another son. So we hear that in chapter 8. Another, another option is that this is a reference to some unknown child, but Ahaz would have known, not something that's not recorded in Scripture, and the name would have been given Emmanuel. Now, each of these options have problems. I'm not going to go into all of them. There are problems with dates. There are problems with the names. But not the least of these problems is that none of these children, no matter which one it is, was born of a virgin. <clears throat> not one of them. Now, some often, often counter and say that what the Hebrew word here used for virgin is vague, and it could mean a, uh, an unmarried woman or, or a girl, and, and, and perhaps that is true. Most likely an unmarried woman and a girl in that time would have been a virgin. But even if that's true, even if you, even if you grant that, the, the, the Greek translation of the Septuagint and the word that's used in the Gospel of Matthew, they are unambiguous. They mean virgin. They can actually use, be used to, to reference a man who has not been with a woman. So it's unambiguous. And even if, even if you don't look at the linguistically, even if you just look at the Gospels themselves, Matthew and Luke make it clear that Jesus' conception was supernatural. It makes it clear that Mary was a virgin until the time of Jesus' birth. So my understanding is that this sign of Emmanuel was not intended for Ahaz. Ahaz had refused a sign. And in verse 13, we see that Isaiah is actually no longer addressing Ahaz, but rather he's addressing the house of David. He says, oh, house of David. And it goes on to say, is it too little for you to weary men and you weary that you weary my God also? And this is something we're not going to see in English, because English has one word for you, whether it's plural or whether it is uh, whether it's singular. I mean, some of us try to do like Southern, and we put y'all. I mean, you could read this as, as y'all, or, or us from New Jersey, where you go use guys. So we try to we try to do that. But the Hebrew here is actually plural. It is not singular. So why is this important? It's important because Ahaz is not the one being addressed. Before that, he's been using singular. He's been talking specifically to Ahaz. Now it is plural. He's addressing, the, he, he's not addressing Ahaz. He's addressing the house of David. Or, and so this is not a sign for Ahaz. This is a sign for the house of David. Or more precisely, it's a sign for the faithful remnant that will be around 700 years later. And it's a way for them to, to identify the Messiah. So I don't think that there is an, an intermediate fulfillment. There is only one son born of a virgin throughout all of history, and that was only Jesus. But I think there is an intermediate sign given to Ahaz. It's just not given as the virgin birth. And I think we see this in verse 16. It says, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you, and this is singular, meaning it's addressed to Ahaz, you dread will be deserted. So I see this as, as a reference of this boy in, in 16, not a reference to Jesus when the prophecy was given, but it could be a reference to some generic uh, child. I actually was talking to Travis before this started, and Travis actually thinks this is the, Isaiah's own son that's in his hands. And that actually makes sense. As, as Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, he's holding this little baby, and he's saying, before this child in my hand can choose the good or the evil, these kings that you dread will be gone. This, this problem will be gone. So, I mean, I think that that, I think that's, that, that could be the case. So we're talking about it's only like a year or two. I mean, think of, think of children. I think of my own <clears throat> grandson. <clears throat> In some way, he can know 
He's only 10 months, 11 months old. He can know the difference between good, right, and wrong on a certain level. So we're talking maybe a year, maybe two at the most. So he's saying that within uh, two years, these two smoldering firebrands, resin and pika, will be no more. And this is exactly what happened, according to history. However, Ahaz refused to believe the Lord. As I mentioned, Ahaz takes matters into his own hands. He buys protection from the king of Assyria. Now, this doesn't change the outcome of the um, um, immediate threat. God had, had announced in verse 7 that this invasion would not stand and it would not come to pass. So God is going to stop it regardless of what Ahaz does. And God's plan could not be thwarted. So because of Ahaz's unfaithful, not trusting, going to Assyria, God actually used Assyria to end this intermediate threat, this immediate threat. And I'm sure Ahaz is now slapping himself on the back. He's now crediting himself. He's saying, aren't I so clever to, uh, to get care of this problem, to turn to Assyria for deliverance? However, not so quickly, not so quickly. See, there's serious unintended consequences because of his unfaithfulness. See, that after the Assyrians, the Assyrians did come. They took care of, they did take care of Syria. They took care of Israel. But guess what? Guess who's next on their list? It's Judah. And verse 17, basically, in fact, tells Ahaz that you just jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. And if, if Ahaz would have listened to the Lord, God himself would have taken care of Israel. God himself would have taken care of Syria. But instead, instead, Ahaz took matters into his own hands. He made a deal with the devil, and now he is about to be burned. And the rest of this chapter, you can read through, I'm not going to go through it. The, best of the rest of this chapter is a prophecy about the horrors of the invasion that Judah is going to face because of, <clears throat> not because of Israel and Syria, but because of the Assyrians, because of the foolish actions of Ahaz. Now the question is, what does all this mean to us? This is a nice history lesson. You know, I spent a lot of time looking at the historical context, and we do this because we need to understand uh, it in, in order to rightly interpret what this passage means. We need to understand this. More importantly, we need to understand this in order to rightly apply this passage to our current situation. So we can't, it's not just a one-to-one correspondence. We don't face the same situation that Ahaz did. So the main message of this passage was lack of faith seen in Ahaz. He didn't trust God's word given to him through the prophet. He didn't trust that the Lord would deliver him from his enemies. <clears throat> but rather, he looked to himself. He relied on his own cunning. He relied on his own political craftiness as a means of deliverance from, from, uh, from his enemies, as opposed to looking to God. And what's worse than that, instead of looking to God, he turns to his own enemies. He turns to God's enemies. Ahaz expressed a lack of faith. And he showed it in several ways. <clears throat> First, he shows it by refusing to trust God's word. He refused to trust God's word. He refused to trust this prophecy that was given to him from the Lord through his prophet. He refused to trust that the Lord would deliver him. So that's the first. He refused to trust God's word. Second, Ahaz refused to even consider the message that was given to him. And this is seen in his refusal to ask for a sign. Ahaz had already made up his mind. <clears throat> he already knew what he wanted to do. It didn't matter what God said. It did, he didn't even want to trust if, if it's, he won't even ask if it's true. He didn't want anything to distract him from this decision. So that's second. He didn't even want to consider the message. And third, his decision was to take matters into his own hands. He was going to go to the king of Assyria for protection rather than the Lord. Basically, his third was works righteousness. He said, I could do it myself. I can save myself. I can take care of myself. I don't need the Lord. I don't need to wait for the Lord. <clears throat> so what is the application for us? Well, it's not the same 
exact same as it was for Ahaz. See, our application is not to sit back and let God take care of all of our problems. It's not to refuse to take any initiative. Say, well, God's going to do it. I don't have to do anything. It's not to refuse to look for a, for a solution to our problems. It's not, it's not to refuse to work hard to solve the problem. The application is not to refuse to make a decision. The application is not just to, to let go and let God, as some people like to say. And the reason for this difference is that Ahaz is given a specific prophecy concerning an immediate problem. He's given a specific prophecy about this problem, about this immediate threat, and God has given it to them. But my friends, God does not give us specific prophecies about our specific challenge. He doesn't, doesn't give us a specific prophecy about our health problem, or about our financial problem, or about our job, or, or something that we need to work on. He doesn't give us that. God doesn't tell us, don't worry about your medical problem. Don't go to the doctor. I'm going to take care of it. Just let go and let God. He doesn't give us, the, don't worry about your financial difficulty. You know, don't worry about working. Don't worry about saving. Don't worry about uh, uh, being wise in your expenses. Just let go and let God. <clears throat> God will take care of all your, all your needs. We can't say that, you know, if, 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 I, if I work hard, if, if, if I take initiative, that, that it's not trusting God, that I'm being just like Ahaz. See, Ahaz is not condemned for taking initiative. Ahaz is condemned because he doesn't trust God, God's clear word that is given to him. So it would be an erroneous application of this text to say that we're not going to take any initiative. We're not going to do it. We're just going to let go and let God. And why? Because God did not give us the same specific promise that he gave to Ahaz. So don't make the mistake of assuming the promise given to Ahaz is a general promise given to God's people, that he'll take care of every single problem. It is not. But there is a promise. There is a promise given to us in this text. And the promise has already been fulfilled. It has already been fulfilled in space and in time. And the promise is the sign of Emmanuel, the sign of God with us. And as we begin this Advent series, as we prepare to celebrate the Incarnation, we see this prophecy. This prophecy made it 700 years before the birth of Christ. A prophecy that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, God with us. We see this prophecy has been fulfilled. And this prophecy strengthened us. This prophecy is a sign to us. It is a sign that God is a God who can fulfill prophecies. God is God. God is the God of the universe. <clears throat> and this sign, this very sign, the sign of Emmanuel, God is with us. He dwells with us. His people are given this sign to strengthen their faith, to strengthen our trust in him. And we don't trust that God will, will deliver us from every specific trial that we face, from cancer or singleness or financial difficulty or whatever you're facing right now. See, unlike Ahaz, this specific promise was not given to us. But my friends, we have a much, much, much greater promise than Ahaz had. Through Emmanuel, God has promised us ultimate deliverance from any problem that we ever would face. Ultimate deliverance in Christ, in Emmanuel, in God with us. My friends, this is our application. Our application is the gospel. Our application is to believe the gospel. We are to trust God. He alone is the one who works. There is absolutely nothing we can do to make it happen. Nothing we can do. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. As we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's our application. To cling to that cross and knowing that there's nothing that we can do. And when, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, when we become a new creation in Jesus Christ, then we can fully enjoy this Emmanuel 
reality. God with us. God in us. God is for us. <clears throat> and regardless, regardless of any external trial that we may face, even, even the very destruction of our, our city, our home, even our lives, we know nothing can ultimately hurt us. In fact, we know that for those of us who are in Christ, all things must work together for our good and for God's glory. We don't understand it all now. We will not understand it now. But we will know. We know it's true. And we will understand it in eternity. <clears throat> so this is our application. Faith and trust in that child born to the virgin. And to receive and rest upon him. Rest upon Emmanuel. Take joy in Emmanuel. Knowing that God is with us. And will be with us for all eternity. And my friends, there is nothing. Nothing better than this. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the sign of Emmanuel. We thank you for this promise given 700 years before Jesus was born, fulfilled in Jesus, and still being applied to us today. And Father, this is the gospel. And I pray if there are any here who do not know you, who are not part of you, Father, I pray you will change that now, that you will take down scales and you will open our eyes to see you. And that we will take joy in you and knowing that you are with us, that you are in us, that you are for us. And that will be the same for all eternity. There is no greater joy than this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song, if you please stand, is we sing the song of Emmanuel. <clears throat>